Welcome to the Third City Christian Church Podcast. This week's message is The Good Life, Part 1, recorded January 7th, 2024. If you have a story about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending an email to podcast at thirdcityc.org. Now here's Brendan with today's message. If we haven't met, my name is Brendan. I'm a minister on the staff. I'm just really glad to have you all here. Special welcome to those of you who are joining us online. We're glad to have you here as well. Now, as we get started, I want to start off with a question, and this is going to require a little bit of crowd cooperation. And so, are you with me on this? Yeah? Okay. All right. Uh, To start off, here's what I want you to do. To turn to your neighbor, take 15 to 30 seconds and answer this question. When you think of the good life, what do you think of? Take 15, 30 seconds, turn to your neighbor. You can talk, it's okay, giving you permission. Turn to your neighbor, same with you online. Drop it in the chat. When you think of the good life, what do you think of? All right, let's go ahead and bring it back together. That's good. I love to hear voices talking in church. And, uh, and so I just wonder what some of you said. You know, sometimes I'd love to hear all your different answers. I imagine some of you probably said something about maybe having a better car or a nicer home. I imagine some of you, especially uh, on January morning, thought it might be nice to, to be by a pool or to live by the beach. Maybe that's the good life. I wonder if any of you thought about this. Because when I think of the good life, this is what I think of. Nebraska, home of Arbor Day, the good life. Now, those of you who have been around here for a while, you know that I'm from Iowa, and so it's like a moral obligation. I have to poke fun at you. Um, I don't mean it. I'm a a citizen here as well. But uh, the good life? (laughs) Nebraska? Really? Well, I'm... This is a baffling sign. In fact, I remember the first time I moved to Nebraska. I was an 18-year-old. I went to a little Bible college called Nebraska Christian College up in Norfolk. And I crossed the river and saw this sign. And I was just baffled. Nebraska, home of Arbor Day, the good life. And I was baffled for a few reasons. First off, home of Arbor Day. Really? Look, I love trees. I'm pro-creation care. I believe that God created, after God created us, his first command for us was to care for this planet, and trees are a big part of that. But I'm telling you, there's no one outside Nebraska that knows there's Narbor Day. (laughs) It would be like us in Iowa having a sign that says, Iowa, home of the butter cow. Now, has anyone here heard of the butter cow? Okay, one person, and they're from Iowa. Look, the butter cow is an Iowa treasure. Everybody in Iowa knows the butter cow. But we know no one's crossing straight lines to come see the butter cow. And not only that, the good life? Did the people who, come up, who came up with this slogan forget what life is like in Nebraska in January? Now, to be fair, it's not like Iowa's sign is much better. Here's what you see when you enter Iowa crossing the river. Iowa, fields of opportunities. Doesn't exactly scream, let's go, does it? It's about as exciting as Iowa football. But at least it feels realistic. Because Nebraska, the good life, there's something about, special about this place. There's a reason I moved here. But as an outsider, 
It's not the first thing I would have thought of when I thought of the good life. And here's the crazy thing about that. Nebraska, in that sense, I can't believe I'm saying this. Don't quote me here. Don't, creative team, don't take a picture of me and add this. But Nebraska, in that sense, is a lot like heaven on earth. Because the good life, as it's described by Jesus, isn't what anyone else thought either. This week, we're kicking off a series called The Good Life, where we're talking about the good life according to Jesus. What is it? Who gets it? And most importantly, how do I get in on it? Because deep down, we all really want in on it, don't we? We all want the good life. We all want to be happy, truly happy. We want to live a life that matters, a life that we can look back and say, that was good. And if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of us aren't happy. A lot of us feel like we're missing out on something, like there's got to be more. Like if I can just get that boat, I'll be happy. Or if I can just get that car, I'll be happy. Or if I can just get that home, or that promotion, or a spouse and 2.5 kids, then I'll be happy. Have you ever noticed that new circumstances don't always make you happy? I mean, this Christmas, how many of you had a kid who got through all their presents, opened all the presents, and then some, and then they get to the end and they're like, okay, great, where's my next present? I had one, two. (laughs) New presents, new things don't always make us happy. They can make us feel better for a moment, but do they really truly make us happy? We live in a nation that says that every person has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we all should have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And truth is, in our nation, that hasn't always been the case. But what if happiness isn't found in the things we've tended to think will make us happy? What if the things we've been pursuing were really never made for that job? They weren't designed to fill that hole deep down in our heart. What if the good life isn't so much about our circumstances as it is about a way of life? A way of life that might cost you everything you have and yet offers you more than you could ever dream or imagine. Well, in Matthew 5, 3 3 through 12, we get Jesus' vision for that way of life, the good life. And so if you have a Bible with you, you can turn there, and if not, no big deal. We'll have all the words on the screen. We're going to be studying this passage over the next several weeks, and so my goal this morning is really just to set up the passage and give you a bird's-eye view of what this is all about. So beginning in Matthew 5, verse 3, here's what we read. How good is life for the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of the skies. How good is life for those who grieve, because they will be comforted. How good is life for the unimportant, because they will inherit the land. How good is life for those who hunger and thirst for right relationships, because they will be satisfied. How good is life for those who show mercy because they will be shown mercy? How good is life for the pure in heart because they will see God? How good is life for the peacemakers because they will be called children of God? How good is life for those of you who have been persecuted on account of doing what is right because theirs is the kingdom of the skies? How good is life for you when they insult you and persecute And speak any evil lies against you on account of me. Celebrate and shout for joy, because your reward is great in the skies. Because this 
is how they persecuted the prophets before you. So here we read a passage famously known as the Beatitudes. It's part of a passage, a much bigger passage, that's called on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. And it gets its name, the Beatitudes, from the Latin translation of the Bible, where the first word is translated as beati, where we read that phrase over and over again, how good is life for? In the Latin Bible, it reads this, beati, 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 beati. That's how it gets its name, the Beatitudes. Some English translations use the word blessed or blessed in that spot. That's what we sang in that song earlier, actually, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Other translations use the word happy, as in happy are those who are hopeless because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. These are both fine translations, but I really like the translation, how good is life for? Because I think it helps drive home the idea that Jesus is getting at here, which is really about human flourishing. What does it look like to live a life that flourishes? Really, who are the people who live lives that flourish? The same type of word is used in Psalm 1 where it describes a person who loves Scripture and compares them to a flourishing tree. Here's what it says. The truly happy person, that's the equivalent of the word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. The truly happy person doesn't follow wicked advice, doesn't stand on the road of sinners, and doesn't sit with the disrespectful. Instead of doing those things, these persons love the Lord's instruction, and they recite God's instruction day and night. Now notice this. They are like a tree replanted by streams of water which bears fruit at just the right time and whose leaves don't fade. What this psalm is saying is that the person who loves Scripture is a person who flourishes like a green, fruitful tree right by a stream. That's the idea in this psalm. And it's the idea that Jesus is getting at in the Beatitudes. If you're the kind of person who lives like the people Jesus, Jesus describes, this is what's true about you. You have a flourishing life. You have a good life. How good is your life? Of course, for us as readers, we're naturally shocked by Jesus' claims because this isn't at all how we would have thought about the good life. How good is life for the poor in spirit? Really? How good is life for those who grieve? How good is life for the unimportant? This isn't a good life, at least how we tend to think about the good life. For us, it's more like, how good is life for those who are flush with cash? How good is life for those who take long vacations? How good is life for those called influencer and CEO and PhD? Jesus' view of the good life is really very countercultural. It's upside down. And as shocking as it is to us, it would have been at least as shocking to those in his day. About 200 years before Jesus, there was another great Jewish teacher who was also named Jesus, Jesus ben Sirah. And he had his own set of nine Beatitudes, just like we get right here. I won't read them all to you, but here are just a few so you can get a taste of what this other Jesus taught. How good is life for the one who lives to see the downfall of his enemies. How good is life for the one who is not served an inferior? How good is life for the one who speaks to attentive listeners? In other words, how good is the life of the person who's so important that people cling 
to their every word. This is the good life as it was thought in Jesus' time and day. And so when Jesus steps on the scene and says, no, 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 this isn't the good life. True human flourishing doesn't look like being important, but really being unimportant. And true human flourishing doesn't look like overtaking enemies, but really making peace with enemies. And true human flourishing doesn't look like being served, but really being a servant. When he says this, you can imagine how much it would have rattled the people who are in his audience. I like how Scott McKnight imagined it. He writes, The natural response to Jesus' list is to ask, Who does this man think he is? Who is this guy to make such claims? Let's talk about that for a minute. I want to back up a few verses to Matthew 5, 1 through 2. What gives Jesus the authority to make these claims? Why should we listen to him? Well, if you look at these verses, notice what it says. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak, and he taught them. All right, now notice this. Where does it say that Jesus went? He went up a mountain, right? Now, this is an interesting detail because if you travel to the area where Jesus most likely taught this sermon, which was near a little village called Capernaum, which was along the Sea of Galilee, there aren't really any mountains there. I mean, there's one mountain off in the distance called Mount Arbel, but the place where Jesus most likely gave this sermon was more like a hillside. Here's a picture of the traditional location. What do you notice? Do you see a mountain? Not really. A hill maybe, but not a mountain. Here's another picture from the hill looking toward the lake. This is a beautiful spot with a great view and this impressive church built to commemorate the sermon. But it's not really a mountain, is it? So what's going on here? Why does Matthew call this a mountain? Well, in the biblical world, mountains were thought to be places where God would meet humans, where heaven meets earth. I mean, if you think about it visually, if the heavens are up there, and if mountains which are part of the earth reach up into there, then mountains are like the intersecting points where heaven meets earth. Mountains are where these two realms collide, heaven and earth. This is why in the Bible, God tends to meet people at mountains, It's why God gave Israel the law at a mountain, Mount Sinai. And it's why God's temple was built at a mountain, Mount Zion. Because in the Bible, mountains are where God meets humans, where heaven meets earth. It's no coincidence then that in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' unique identity as the Son of God is most clearly revealed on mountains. We see this in the story of the transfiguration, where on a mountain, Jesus' appearance changes and God calls him his son. And we see it in the story of the Great Commission, where on a mountain, the disciples worship Jesus like God, and he calls himself the son. And so it's no small detail when Matthew 5 says that Jesus gave this sermon from a mountain. It's Matthew's way of saying that here again, God was meeting humans. The Son of Heaven had come to earth. This is what gives Jesus the authority to say these things. Why we should listen to him, because he's not just a teacher. And he's not just a philosopher. I mean, he is a teacher and he is a philosopher, but he's more than that. In some strange sense, Jesus is God 
come to earth. That's why he has the authority to say what he says. And here's why we should listen to him. Because as the Son of God, he knows better than anyone else what heaven is actually like, how life operates up there. And that's what he's trying to teach us, what it would look like to experience heaven on earth, the good life. And we can see this if we look at the whole sermon from 30,000 feet. If you take the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, not just the Beatitudes, but all of it, Matthew 5 through 7, if you break it down structurally into all its different sections and subsections, and you go to the middle section of the middle section of the middle section of the middle section of the sermon, right there at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount is a prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And in the center of the prayer is a line where Jesus teaches us to pray these words. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on what? On earth as it is in heaven. This, at its core, is what the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes included, is all about. What it looks like when heaven meets earth. Think about this. Here at a place where heaven meets earth, a mountain, we have the Son of Heaven meeting the people of earth, teaching them to pray that heaven would meet earth as he invites them to live in such a way that heaven has met earth, the good life. And even though the good life, according to Jesus, might be hard to believe, even though the world doesn't seem to operate that way, what he invites us to discover is that his way of doing life, as radical and upside down as it may seem, that way of life leads to real human flourishing, heaven on earth, the good life. Now, what does it look like to embody all the characteristics Jesus describes? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for right relationships? What does it mean to be pure in heart and persecuted for doing what's right? Well, that's what we're going to talk about over the next eight weeks, so I don't want to get into that too much. We'll discover that along the way. And how can it be that grieving looks like flourishing? Or unimportance looks like flourishing? Or making peace and showing mercy looks like flourishing? Because I know some of you are grieving, deeply grieving. And some of you feel like a nobody and it doesn't feel good. And some of you at work and at home and at school wrestle every day with the realities of crime, evil, bullying, and power abuse. And you're wondering how you can possibly be an instrument of peace in what seems like a broken and hopeless situation. I can't address all those things today. That's why we want to work through this passage slowly over the next several weeks. But today I do want to pose this question. Would you give Jesus a chance on this and see if what he says isn't really true? I don't know what you came in today believing about Jesus. I don't know if Jesus for you is just some guy or if he's just some teacher or if he really is the Son of God. I do know that if you have doubts or questions, you're welcome here. I mean, I have my own questions, and I'm here. Why do you think I study this stuff so much? I'm trying to figure things out for myself. And that's okay. We're glad you took the step to be here. You're welcome here. And I don't know what you came in today feeling, but if you, like so many of us, have found yourself moving from experience to experience, 
and temporary pleasure to temporary pleasure, trying to find the next thing that can give you your next fix. And here's my ask. Would you just give Jesus a chance on this and see if what he says isn't really true? Would you take a chance and see if what he offers doesn't give you more than a fix, but actually enables you to flourish? Would you take a chance and see if his way of doing life isn't actually heaven on earth, the good life? If you're willing to take a chance on this, here's your first step. To meet him at the mountain and listen at his feet. If you were here last week, you heard Dan cast our vision for 2024. And one of the things we want to do as a church this year uh, is to immerse ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount. The Good Life isn't just a standalone series. Really, it's the first in a series of series that unpacks the Sermon on the Mount, what it's all about. Sometimes we'll take a step back and, and study other things along the, as, as it's required throughout the year. But by and large, our Sunday teaching this year will be about the Sermon on the Mount. And as we walk through the sermon, one thing I'd like to challenge you to do is not just to come here every week and to hear about the sermon, but actually, as you go home to your own places, to take time every single week to read and reflect on the Sermon on the Mount. Here's our, here's our ask for you. To read through the entire sermon every week in 2024. Now, there's a lot of ways you could do this. It could be that you pick a day and time every week where you sit down and experience it all in one setting. But it could be that you also break it up and read it throughout the week in smaller chunks. Now, I'm planning to do both. I want to read it for myself every week. But I also want to invite my boys into this. And so as we get ready for bed every night, what I want to do is actually just want to read to them a bite-sized chunk. Now, of course, bedtime is usually the craziest part of our day. I don't want to paint some false picture about how the Lang boys are like angels just waiting for dad to read the Bible to them. No. It's a madhouse. I want to be realistic. It's not always going to work out that way. But I just wonder what could happen in the lives of my boys if they became so immersed, so steeped, and so familiar with the words of Jesus' greatest, most influential sermon that it took root in their heart and shaped their view of what's really real and informed every decision they make for the rest of their lives. What could it do for them if we dedicated this year to bring them to the mountain again and again? And again, and again, and again, and again to hear these words from Jesus. And what could it do for you, your family, and all of our communities if we took these, these words to heart, put them into practice, and really prayed that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done, in Grand Island, and Broken Bow, and throughout Nebraska, as it is in heaven. For me, if that were the case, I'd probably finally have to admit that Nebraska really is the good life. Not yet. Not yet, but that's my prayer. Till then, Jesus is sitting on the mountain, inviting us to come, to sit, and to listen with him. And so would you give him a chance on this and see if what he says isn't really true? God, we come before you at the communion table, looking to Jesus, looking to the Son seated there on the mountain who's inviting us into a new way of living. And as I think about Jesus, I think about a, a person, not just any person, but a God person, who embodied all of these characteristics, of whom it can be said, he was poor in spirit. He knew what it was like to grieve. He knew what it was like to be unimportant. 
He knew what it was like to be persecuted. And yet he embodied everything, at least I desire in my life. God, I know that if I want to be like Jesus, then I need to dig in and see what this is all about as well. And so God, as we come to the communion table and reflect again on his life, God, would you inspire us, challenge us, help us to discover for ourselves what it looks like to flourish for real. Just we pray in your name. Thanks for listening to the Third City Christian Church Podcast. Please join us for one of our worship services at 9, 10, 15, or 11.30 a.m. in Grand Island and at 10, 15 a.m. in Broken Bow on Facebook Live and at thirdcityc.online.church each Sunday. For more information about Third City Christian Church, send email to podcast at thirdcityc.org. Call us at 308-384-5038 or visit us online at thirdcityc.org.